0: You're listening to Nowhere to Run with Chris White on the Revelations Radio Network. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome to Nowhere to Run. My name is Chris. Thank you for downloading this show. Hey, today we're going to do a lot of fun things. We're going to answer some questions that have been sent in, and I really like that. I think it helps to keep this podcast fresh And so I've made a really easy way for you to submit questions for the podcast. If you go to uh, either BibleProphecyTalk.com or NowhereToRunRadio.com, in the sidebar there will be a very easy form to fill out. Just put your name, put your question, hit send. It will go directly to my email box and I will try my best to answer them on the podcast or if not, I'll just answer them directly to you if I have the time. Alright, so today we're going to answer some questions about hell. We're going to talk about Nephilim skulls and Nephilim mounds and all that stuff. Does it have to do with the Nephilim? Does it have to do with Bible prophecy? And then we're going to talk a little about the age of the universe as well. But before that, I want to do a few show notes. I keep meaning to try to keep these short, so I'll I'll try my best to do that. I am uh, almost finished with the upcoming book, False Christ. It should be out a week, two weeks, I don't know. But if you want to know when it comes out, make sure to get on the email list at uh, either nowhere to run or the Bible prophecy email list at Bible prophecy com. It's good for you to do that because when I uh, release the book, I am going to give it away for free to anyone that's on those uh, email lists. I'm going to uh, give you a free PDF of the book if you're on those email lists. So. Be sure to get on that before the book comes out. I just spent the last week recording the audio book while well, re-recording it since I published most of it on the podcast. But I wanted to make it better and clearer and reflect the uh, edits that have been done. So, in any case, that is coming up soon. And I wanted to take some time to briefly discuss what I am going to be doing with my time or the majority of my what I call project time uh, after the book is released. I'm going to be doing promotion and that kind of thing for a while and whatnot. But uh as far as upcoming projects, I I rack my brain all the time when I don't have anything specific and big to be working on. I always have little stuff to be working on, but the big macro big things, I always am just in despair unless I have something going on. So I've come up with a lot of things that I have uh scrapped, over the last few weeks as I'm trying to determine this. But I think I finally have what I'm going to be spending the bulk of my project time on. And that is a uh, podcast series, video series, and book that is tentatively titled How to Get Out of a Spiritual Rut and Get Back Your Zeal and Joy for God, or How to Get Back Your Joy and Zeal for God. And I've talked about this a lot on the podcast and have uh, given lots of advice about it and whatnot. But And every time I do that, I find everybody seems so interested in it because, number one, they're surprised that other people are going through this or have gone through it it in the past. You know, that uh, there's a cycle of of depression and guilt that goes on when uh, a new Christian who knows what it's like, or rather an older Christian that knows what it's like to have had that zeal and joy for God and then lose it and go into a, a kind of spiritual stagnation where they don't even want to pray or read the Bible and they just, uh all these things um kind of build up and you think, wow, I'm super bad. And, you know, maybe I've even lost my salvation and all these other things that uh the devil sort of piles on. And there are a number of things that have made me want to do this. First of all, it's that need that's out there. And secondly, what is out there about that is so impractical. It's like, you know, just telling you, uh, this is how it should be and whatever, but there's very little just direct practical stuff. And so I want to make something that's, that's funny, that's, that's intensely practical, but also takes into account that it's not just about, uh, doing these things, uh, or fun and cool ideas to do those things, because ultimately it is the Holy Spirit that has to give you back your zeal for God. That's essentially the engine of all this zeal and joy. So the question then becomes well, what are the practical ways to get more to have your holy spirit knob you know turned up I've talked about in the past about how the christian life is not automatic the soul needs care just like a, a garden needs care if you if you don't um if you don't take care of it if you let weeds grow it's going to ultimately be unfruitful and what i've been surprised about is that the bible is so helpful there's so many gems dispersed all throughout the bible that give practical advice for the the christian about maintaining uh this this christian life and and zeal and walking in the spirit and how it's done it's it's this consistent theme in the bible about the practical steps to do that to take care of your soul and the necessity of doing it so i i want to collect first of all all those uh places that give that direct practical spiritual advice and and do a lot of study to figure out you know what are the consistent sort of ideas here and put them all together and see what what develops in terms of the the best way to to say this because it's certainly not for a lack of information because the bible says so much about it that we've got like 40 things that the bible recommends you know um but but I want to get really really serious about figuring out and condensing it all and being as helpful as possible uh, for you guys, for, and I don't care if anybody else ever reads it, ever looks at the video or whatever, but, uh, those that are out there that do listen to this podcast, I want, uh, us at least to be, uh, uh, built up and do all the things that the Bible says. And that's the cool thing about it is that, um, you know, the Bible, the Bible doesn't say, you know, this won't ever happen. It's just giving lots of advice to keep it from happening. And, um, you know, if I, if, if I was kind of told this from the beginning, it would have saved me like i said in facebook a lot of uh a lot of guilt and a lot of depression if i would have said if somebody would have said now that you're saved and you have all this zeal for god um you need to know that there that if you don't take care of it if you let the garden grow weeds then you're going to fall into a state of you know stagnation and you should expect that it's, it's going to come at some point or another whether because of external circumstances or your lack of doing certain things and so if I would have known that, I think I would have been a lot uh better prepared and so that's that's an important thing for me to do in terms of uh my goals of discipleship for people because I think that in my zeal in my assurance that uh the Christian life is always um you know beautiful and growing and uh and uh, and the rest of it, which it certainly is to a certain extent I have maybe led people to think that if you're not showing immediately those fruits. Um, then, you know, you're not saved. And I, and I felt, I think at some point, and I know listening to a lot of my videos about, you know, assurance of salvation, it, it relies so much on evidence of the fruit of the spirit. And I do think that that's true. Um, when I was first saved, you know, the evidences of the fruit of the spirit and were just so, Contrasted to my previous life, and I was starting to desire the things of God and sins were just falling off me, and I wanted to pray more and read the Bible, and all that stuff was direct evidence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I was definitely exhibiting the fruits of the spirit, but what to do when that's all gone and the joy when well, it's all gone I, I I think that I'll argue that even your desire for that uh that uh, a place that you once knew is evidence that it's not all gone, the fire may be. Uh, just a, a small little big lighter flame there but uh, the, that flame can be fanned into an on fire uh, life for God it, That flame is not out you you just need to turn the dial up and so that's the, the goal of all this stuff and I think that your garden to continue this analogy will continue to grow without any direct maintenance I have a square foot garden that doesn't really require as much maintenance because it's raised it's a raised bed. So, you know, weeds aren't as big of a problem. They still get in there, but, um, I can effectively kind of plant something. And as long as the rain is coming and stuff like that, I don't even have to go out there and water it and fruit will, will bear, even though probably not as much as if I went out there and fertilized it and did all the things that good gardeners do. It will, it will work for a time like that, but if the, if drought comes or any kind of things happen, if, if they, they will, they will cause fruit not to grow. And so our souls need to be, uh, maintained. And the Bible gives us direct information about that. And I don't want this to be about, you know, just do the spiritual disciplines, pray, you know, have a quiet time and, 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 and read your Bible and the rest of it those of course will be necessary parts of all this stuff but it's it's also needs to be understood that it's not it's not the the act of doing that necessarily that will get back your joy and zeal for god those things can be turned into a work and you can be satisfied with the fact that you're being more diligent about those things it, the bible gives even more crucial and deeper understanding of it that i'm excited about the journey of figuring out and, uh, sharing with all of you. It's probably going to take some time because I do want to do a really good job with it. And I want to really understand the, the breadth and depth of the whole subject. So I've just been on a book reading frenzy. I'm on my fourth book about it. I've listened to, I don't know how many, uh, sermons and the rest of it about it. I'm going, uh, to Nashville this week to, uh, do some, uh, do, do a, or, uh, 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 how am I saying, go, go to a wedding. <laughs> um, with uh, my uh, friend Mike Tater, who is getting, uh, or otherwise known as Tom Bionic, who's getting married. And so I'm going to spend a lot of time just interviewing people that I know in in Nashville about this and what do they say about it. I just want to really get a very comprehensive view and then distill it all down to its most practical and helpful uh, 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 situation. And during this whole time, you won't have to wait too long after I'm done with the research, which will take some time. I will begin podcasting a series about it. So, so it won't be, you don't have to wait till it's all completed. It will be doing that in addition to all the other podcasting stuff that I want to be doing. So that is the macro project that I want to get involved in. I'll still be doing podcasts. I want to really, um, turn up the podcast, both the Nowhere to Run and Bible Prophecy Talk. If you are getting this, I'm not sure how I'm going to release these two podcasts. I've recorded two today. One, uh, is just about Bible prophecy stuff, and it'll be on the Bible prophecy talk feed. It's good to subscribe to both of them if you um, are interested at all in Bible prophecy stuff. And it's also good to get on the email list of both because sometimes I set, send some to the Bible prophecy people that I don't send to the Nowhere to Run list, and so all that. With all that being said, I will get right into your question. So here is question number one. All right, the next question comes from Joe, and she says, I would love to see you do a study on hell. Everyone is doing a study on the end times, and in closing, they always say, where do you want to spend eternity, with God or burning in hell for eternity? I was raised in a very strict Christian home, and since I was just a little girl, I've had trouble reconciling a loving, giving God through Jesus Christ, burning people in torment forever just because they didn't accept them. How do you trust someone like that? My belief is that in the final judgment, there will be punishment, but it will be quick and final. The Bible says that in the final day our works will be judged and the chaff will be consumed by fire. Wouldn't that mean that non-believers would be consumed by fire? The definition of consumed is to destroy as by fire, according to Webster's. I have a hard time telling people that if they don't trust in Jesus, they are going to burn in hell and be tormented forever, right after I've told them about God's love for them. Anyway, I think it would be an important study. Thank you very much for sending this question, and it's a good one. So, I have done a few studies on hell in the past, particularly with this podcast. There are a few things here and there about it, but really nothing totally comprehensive. And I have thought about doing something like that, and I may in the future. But I think the heart of this question is the injustice we feel about there being a one-size-fits-all punishment for everybody. I think that's the heart of the idea, because... Because on the one hand, we agree that uh, wicked people need to be punished. That's sort of the core overarching thing that we agree on, that there needs to be a punishment. Because, um, you know, to say, I can't see a loving God punishing people makes no sense. It would be like saying to a judge who, you know, is maybe like the best judge ever, and he has people come to him, you know, murderers and, you know, uh, rapists, and child molesters, and people that are just totally uh, unrepentant and want to just get out of there so they can do it again. And every time somebody comes to him, he gives the perfect judgment. He says, you know, to this person, you have to be executed, or to this person, you have to uh spend life in prison, or to this person, you need to do community service. He always gives the the great, uh, the, the most perfect judgment. He's a great judge. And sometimes that includes The death penalty, let's say. So to that person, to that judge, we wouldn't say, how can that, that judge, how can anybody like a judge like that? He, he's always giving out perfect justice. That we have no problem with. We love a judge like that. In fact, if a judge didn't give out perfect justice and let these unrepentant, uh, people just go and, and continue to do the evil that they're doing and killing and stealing and destroying everything that they can, we would say, that judge is terrible. That judge needs to be locked up in prison. So we don't have a problem with justice. But I think that our argument here is that this justice doesn't seem to be um, adequate. If everybody that doesn't accept Jesus Christ is going to burn in hell for, for forever. But I think that we miss something about this. And I think a good proof text for it is in Revelation 20, uh, thir- uh, let's say 12 through 14 or 15. But to understand the proof text that I'm going to give, it needs a little bit of setup. I have talked about this in a previous podcast about the doctrine of of hell and when it happens and the the chronology of the judgments and everything. But we know that first of all, in First Thessalonians four, we're told that those who are dead in Christ—this is during the rapture, uh, right before the the wrath of God and everything—they are they are resurrected. The dead in Christ first, and then those who are alive and remain will be resurrected at the same time. So the idea is that everybody that was saved in the Old Testament and all the way into up into the the rapture, everybody that was dead before that, they're going to be resurrected, as well as all the Christians that remain on the earth before the day of the Lord. So they are also resurrected. So that deals with pretty much everybody before. Now, we have people that are saved during the day of the Lord. So, while the wrath of God is being poured out, there is going, there is going to be a group of people who make it through the day of the Lord, um, without bowing a knee to the Antichrist or taking his mark, and they will be mostly beheaded. I think that the Antichrist will have a pretty good system for finding those people. I don't, uh, I think there probably will be some people that are, uh, also alive, but in any case, we know that most of those that are saved throughout the course of the day of the Lord will be uh, beheaded as it says so let's talk about them it says in revelation 20 um, i saw an angel coming down from heaven having a, the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand he laid hold of the dragon that serpent of old who is the devil and satan and bound him for a thousand years he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up uh, and a seal on, and put a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished but after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they that sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Then it says, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished this is the first resurrection blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the death has no power the second death has no power but they shall be priests of god and of christ and shall reign with him a thousand years so those that were beheaded because they did not worship the beast or his image or had not received his mark in their foreheads etc they they were resurrected that's part of the first resurrection or the resurrection of the just it is the completion of the resurrection of the just that's why it's calling it the first resurrection. It's clearly not the first resurrection. The, the rapture happened before that and Jesus' resurrection before that. It is the completion of the two-part resurrection, the resurrection of the just. So the people that, that uh, made it through the day of the Lord without bowing a knee to the Antichrist are then resurrected. But then it says, but the rest of the dead did not live until, again, until the thousand years were finished. So we find out a few things. Like Daniel says, the rest of the dead, which contextually can only be those who are not saved, those that are destined for damnation, they didn't live again until the, re- the thousand years were finished. So the entire millennium takes place without a final judgment of all those from time immemorial who are destined for the lake of fire. Okay. And then um, it goes on to talk about this second uh, death. It says, then I saw... A great white throne. This is after the thousand years. Contextually, now when the thousand years have expired, da 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 da. Then it goes into, and I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from the face and from the face of the earth and the heaven f- fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works. That's important. Remember that phrase. It's going to mention it again. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so the idea here that I want to make, this proof text, is that though hell is eternal, and we're going to talk a little bit about that, it is not without... Perfect judgment. These people that are going to the lake of fire, they are they are judged according to their works. So that means that there must be different, uh, uh, different levels of punishment during this time. And and though you know, and we could talk about is it actually going to be fire that's consuming them? Because that seems like a very you know one size fits all punishment. And there's different arguments for that. Some people point out that the when referencing Gehenna, it is often used in terms of, as they mentioned, burning the chaff figuratively or whatever. It's not entirely necessary that it's a fire consuming them, though I tend to lean towards that to some degree. But in other places, Gehenna is referred to as an outer darkness, which would seem to have no fire in it. We're, we're not one hundred percent sure what exactly the nature of hell is, but what I think you can be sure of is that there are different degrees of that punishment. It will be more severe than others. Different proof texts for this could include Jesus and others saying that it would be more toler- tolerable for this person if they were never born, or it would be more tolerable if they, you know, a millstone was tied, to, tied around their neck, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He is saying that in reference to people who have done particularly egregious sins, um, those who, uh, for example, uh, lead children astray and so on and so forth. He says of them something that is more severe for them in the day of judgment. So the, the correct doctrine about hell must include a, a different levels, if you will. I don't want to go into levels of hell because I'm not sure that has anything to do with anything, but different types or severity of judgment within the context of hell. And this is also true in the in the uh the converse, that is to say that in heaven uh, the correct doctrine would be that there are different um rewards in heaven. There's different sort of rankings, I guess, you know, the least in heaven, as Jesus says, and, the, and um obviously the even the concept of rewards that are mentioned here in the question, they themselves are indicative that there is different Um, you know, rewards, which means apparently whatever those rewards are, they have, they have more rewards in heaven, whatever that means. Okay. So there's different levels in heaven and there's different levels in hell. And I think that in itself helps us to, to understand that this is a matter of perfect justice. And that really helps to, to, uh, to make this more understandable. The, idea, of course, is that we all are condemned, you know, that we all deserve punishment. That is a must. It must happen. As Socrates, you know, mused about God and his his idea, God was justice uh, and he was perfect. And those two concepts of God, which are true, a just God and a perfect God, made it impossible for Socrates to understand how God could forgive sin because like that judge that we talked about earlier if that judge let everyone go because he was loving he would be a terrible judge and we would hate him for it and so socrates said he didn't know how sin could be forgiven in that context because it would make god not perfect and it would make him an unjust judge therefore god can't forgive sin the whole point of sending christ is a lifeline, is a way for, as Romans puts it, to be both a just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. Let me just read that in context, starting in Romans 3.25, whom talking about Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus so god must be just the universe must have justice must have justice if um there's to be any semblance of of perfectness in, in this whole plan justice must prevail but god needs to be the justifier of of people that's the whole goal of redemption so so, God can be the just, that is, punish all sin, no sin goes unpunished, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus by, as it says, as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. So, that sin, that punishment can be completely satisfied. It, it is satisfied in totality on the cross. The punishment for your sin and my sin, not in the nails, not in the, th- the crown of thorns, but in the fact that the wrath of God was poured out—a wrath that you deserved, a justified punishment—was taken uh, willingly by Him for you. And in exchange, you are viewed with Christ's righteousness. His sinless life is imputed to you, and you have right standing before God. So this is the the, the problem solved to Socrates's you know conundrum. How can God be just and the justifier of sinners? It's impossible in his view, but not with Christ. And so anyway, that's that's part of it. The other part is that uh, she says the Bible says that in the final day, our works will be judged and the chaff will be consumed by fire. Wouldn't that mean that non-believers would be consumed by fire? Well, I think there's maybe two ideas going on here. First of all, the idea that our works will be consumed, I think, is in a different, uh, area. I believe it's in, it's in one of the Corinthians letters. I should know that. I should look it up. But in any case, the idea is that, uh, there it's called what sometimes is called the Seat judgment. This happens after the resurrection, the rapture. Our, those works, as it mentions, that are wood, hay, and stubble, those things that are worthless that we did, we we did a whole bunch of stuff on earth that made no impact for the kingdom of God or anything else, those works will be totally consumed. And the only thing that will be left are those things that we did uh, for the glory of God and Jesus Christ, his son. So that is the idea of of the rewards and everything else at the Bema Seat judgment. But I think, Perhaps what she may be referring to is a verse in Matthew 3.12 when it definitely is talking about this concept of burning up the chaff in terms of the wicked in hell. It says in Matthew 3.12, as I said, his winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in this passage, clearly it's in in one sense this is totally allegorical he's using the imagery of a very common idea of threshing wheat you you thresh the wheat you took the actual wheat kernels and put them in the barn and then the rest of the worthless chaff had nothing but to be burned and that's what they did with it they burned the chaff and so he's making this a picture of the eschatological judgment of the wicked is this necessarily saying that they will be burned. And we could argue about that. As I said, I tend to think that there must be some aspect of it because of other places. But in any case, he's definitely using this as an allegorical picture here. But the the point is that he reiterates in this parable, or this, this, this figurative language, he will burn up the chaff. Yes, he will consume the chaff, but with unquenchable fire. Now, this isn't allegorical. This wasn't what they did in the uh, times when they were burning the chaff. There there wasn't an unquenchable fire then, and they certainly didn't keep a fire going at all, all the time forever just so they could burn the chaff. He is taking this analogy a step further and, and and reiterating the unquenchableness or the eternal nature of the fire. So even in this very verse, the idea of hell being eternal is reiterated. And I would just take this time to say that there are a lot of people who, um, who argue against the eternality of hell. Like, you know, famously, uh, Rob Bell and the others who say that it's just for a time and then everybody's going to be saved or whatever. And there's a lot of other, I would say, obvious false teachers that are doing this. And they do it in a very sneaky false teacher kind of way. They throw, you know, Greek words at you. Oh, don't you know, Gehenna was just a, a, a fire pit outside of, uh, Jerusalem and the rest of the stuff that they do but if you really analyze that because it all sounds good and of course we want to believe it anyway you know so it's just easy for us to to fall into their their net but um but if you really analyze it and you really do the the study and, and check out their Greek and actually go to the other verses that they don't mention and the rest of it you'll find that the eternality of hell is spoken of much more than the eternality of heaven First of all, and it's using the same words, sometimes even in the same passages. The word eternal there, if we accept that heaven is eternal, we must, because of these passages, accept also that hell is eternal. Uh, not an allegorical sense. These are not parables. These are direct teachings about hell. So, um, so it's very, very difficult to, to, to wiggle out of the eternality of hell. Um, but as I said, I think this whole thing is, is really about the idea that it's a one-size-fits-all judgment for people. So, to me, I don't agree with the idea of, you know, scaring people into the kingdom. Uh, though, a lot of really great and wonderfully saved people are, you know, did come to Christ through something like that. But, it's interesting to note that a lot of folks do that. You know, uh, Paul, when when speaking to um, the, uh, the Greeks... You know, he has, he has set a time to judge the world, uh, by his son. You know, that is one of his, you know, closing arguments about this, that there is a judgment coming, that we all must give account for our, uh, our sins against God and our rejection of God that was given to us as a gift. Romans 2 tells us that everyone knows that they're accountable to God and they know that God exists somewhere deep down, but they are rejecting that they are turning from him. That's the ultimate issue here and so so it's certainly not uh, wrong to say that and it doesn't diminish in any way in fact uh, that is to say diminish in any way God's um, loving nature or his perfectness his justice just like that judge is absolutely crucial for his perfect and divine nature he must give justice the problem is is that we all need to be judged for our rejection of God so that's kind of the problem. And not to mention a rejection of God, but are also are the works and the various specific terrible things that have been done. So that's that's kind of what I would say to this. I do think it's important to, uh, to, do the, to talk more about hell. Francis Chan put out a book pretty recently called Erasing Hell. So if you want to know more about it, I would consider picking up that book. And we will end it here. All right. Daniel asks, are you ever going to expound on your 11-8-2012 Nowhere to Run podcast about the hydroplate theory and time dilation? And the answer is that I have been seriously considering it. I have thought that I would do this after this um, book, False Crisis, published, But and I bought all the materials about the hydroplate theory, the books and videos and everything, and have been researching it in my free time trying to come up with a a way to reconcile it all but so far I have decided not to do that at least until I can figure it out and that's sort of harder than it looks because with these kinds of theories about uh, you know old earth young earth creationism and evolution and the flood and the rest of it it's really a matter of like a very comprehensive study. I mean, the earth sciences and biological stuff and theological stuff, it's just so comprehensive. You you know, the people that do this for their, you know, ministry, their entire ministry, they got to keep up with the papers. You know, what about this particular bird who, you know, does this particular thing or whatever? They got to have an answer for that and that and whatever. So it's just, you have to know so much stuff. And part of me thinks if I'm going to do something like this, uh, just like the other things that I do, I really, I really want to know as much as I can about it, but that's just such an overwhelming task with this issue that I have, uh, uh, shied away from it. And that's especially because as I'm researching both of these theories, I'm just, I'm just not sure what my position is yet. I mean, on the one hand, I know I, I lean toward the hydroplate theory, especially in regard to the specifics of how the flood happened with the mid Atlantic rift and everything. I mean, that just seems rock solid that he's on board there, but he is also a very diehard. You know, it, it has to happen in, in regular six days, which I, of course, agree with in terms of a literal hermeneutic, but I see Dr. Gerald Schroeder's view of as inescapable as well. I mean, if after the creation of the universe, m- the, the mass and energy were expanding at great speeds, and we know that it's slowing down now, then it is necessary because of you know, physics, that that time was also moving with that rapid expansion of mass and energy because that's what EMC equal, E equals mc squared means. So it that would necessarily mean that time was going super, super, super fast at the beginning and has been slowing down progressively ever since. Which means that one 24-hour period, and how you judge that 24-hour period is difficult because if the Earth wasn't revolving, and then, or you know, rotating and then revolving around the sun. What method are we using to say 24-hour period? But if you just took the the math of it and said, let's say one 24-hour period. Let's say from God's perspe- perspective, what 24 hours would be? What Gerald Schroeder showed is that. Based on the expansion of the universe and the speed in which it ex- is ex- uh, uh, slowing down now, we can ter- determine the rate that it was expanding in the beginning and the rest of it. And he shows that actually the, like, day one would include, you know, so and so million of years. Day two would include a lesser amount of millions of years, but still quite a lot. And it's hard to understand that, of course, because we can't conceive of, like, millions of years of time occurring in 24 hours but that's exactly what relativity means time is actually moving differently even different uh bodies in our solar system on the sun time is moving much much slower in a 24 hour period than on a smaller body because it's just placing uh gravity anyway the, the i i have talked about this in other places but that's a rock solid understanding of physics that they're all connected time and energy and mass so if you affect mass or time you know for example i think i mentioned uh, they have shown that two stopwatches one person going on a jet plane a learjet or whatever around the world will be like a few seconds i think it's 15 seconds or something different that uh it can be uh increased to a huge degree a person can age and die within what we would perceive on earth as a 24-hour period just because they were on a different um, uh, mass. And that's why physicists say when they talk about the age of the universe, they must include, or even though they don't do it very often, that the age of the universe is so-and-so millions or billions of years from the Earth's perspective, because it's a different number of years if you're on the sun. And it's a different number of years by their counting if you're on this thing or that thing. So, um, so it's a complicated thing, and I do plan on doing something about it once I figure it out. But at this point, I haven't quite figured it out. I've been listening to all the, the different podcasts in Old Earth and the Young Earth, and they've all got good theories, and they all are doing great work. Uh And I think that the problem for me is that I think that they're both right, yet they've considered one another their enemies. But if you consider... And, and another thing that bothers me is that both of those groups, the Young Earthers and the Old Earthers, totally hate and disregard Gerald Schroeder and Dr. Walt Brown. They think they're just crazy because they don't agree with the systems that they now have in place that have to, that they have to defend. They're as close minded about this as, as anything. And so it is important to me to, to try to reconcile uh, that and to get everybody to shake hands and say, look, you're both right. You can have a totally literal view of the six days, 24 hour period. And you can explain the things that the young earth creationists have a hard time explaining. Not, it isn't to say that they don't have explanations or that they're not good explanations. In fact, part of the thing, you know, reading Walt Brown's uh Hydroplate Theory, he's got a book called In the Beginning, I believe, it's a huge book and got lots of information in it about lots of stuff. His explanations for all these difficult questions are quite good. And I'm like, well, yeah, that that makes sense, but others are not so good. So the point is that um I'm not sure yet. I know the answer's out there, but I'm not sure if it's for me to figure out and to do a comprehensive thing. I tend to figure out my, my goals about what to do, um, based on a number of criteria. And one of those, uh, one of those is that it needs to be something that not just anybody can do and needs to be something that's fulfilling a, a gap that needs to happen. I do think this fulfills that, but at the same time, to, to do all that work, And to know all those things about this bird and this scientific paper and this, you know, thing about astronomy and this thing about, uh, geology. And it's just, it's just overwhelming. It would take a lot of work. It would be like me, which I've tried before to do a comprehensive debunking of Jehovah's Witnesses or, or whatever. In order to do that, I kind of, I have to eat, live and breathe Jehovah's Witness doctrine for an extended period of time because it's just not as easy as as giving out the standard proof text because they've got proof proof texts against those proof texts and you've got to know and and be with and and really envelop yourself in that doctrine in order to to do anything uh, as well as I would like to do it so the answer is yes probably I will probably do something about this in the future but it's not for a while I've still got a lot to figure out on my own but I would recommend that everybody check out these two guys. Dr. Gerald Schroeder, an MIT professor or former MIT professor. Uh, you can Google Genesis and the Big Bang for information and a video about him. And then Dr. Walt Brown, also an MIT graduate, he uh, did the hydroplate theory. And you can see a brief video that explains the hydroplate theory out there. Both of those incredibly important and need to be addressed in a serious way That's one of the things I spend a lot of time doing is reading criticisms about each of these theories. And one of the reasons I'm encouraged about it is that the criticisms from both the young earth and old earth camps about these guys are so superficial and they're not dealing with the actual, the meat of their arguments. They're, they're nipping about the the things on the periphery and saying, you know, this little thing is wrong and this little thing is wrong, but nobody's getting to the core message uh, about what these guys are saying and, and they're, ad hominems and all kinds of different stuff are going around, but the criticisms that are out there are totally unconvincing unconvincing rather. So, all right, that's that. All right. Laura asks, I'm trying to research whether the elongated skulls, giant skeletons, and Nephilim mounds are really what people are claiming them to be. It's so difficult for me to know where to look. There are people I respect claiming this stuff. Maybe it's true, but how can I tell? Okay, so first of all, I would like to recommend uh, at least two blog posts put up on uh, my website ancientaliensdebunk.com, written by Frank Johnson who really did an overview of the the elongated skulls, Nephilim skull uh, idea and the genetic testing stuff that goes along with that. It's a really good, very technical overview of what is known and what isn't about that. So, first of all, on that point, I think that there's been a ton of promotion recently about this. Uh, Brian Forrester put out a, a, I guess you could call it a press release, a, a sort of social media blitz about this genetic testing campaign in which he said that the elongated skulls in Peru were, um, you know, were of alien or unknown origin. And we pointed out in that article, or uh, Frank did, because he wrote it mostly and did all the research, that, um, that it was, vi- you know, a very common kind of problem with the genetic testing. That doesn't mean that it's alien by any stretch. And there are a ton of problems with the way this was done. First of all, the genetic testing, they don't name who did it. They don't give any details about, um, the geneticist that was involved with this. This is not how you publish this kind of thing. In the scientific world making claims like this, it needs to be peer reviewed. And I understand that, uh, you know, as they put it, this is, this is something for the world to know. You know, we don't want to just limit this to a bunch of scholars or whatever. But that's just, it may, it may be true in lots of other disciplines, but with science, it does need to be validated. If it's true, if what they're saying is true, why should they have to worry about this? But the whole, how this thing came to be, uh, tested and stuff through, uh, this, this guy that was just part of the star child project. I mean, they went to, they gave these skulls to a guy who was totally predisposed to making these things be star children. And he's the one that did all these, these genetic testings. But the articles, uh, that were posted on the website and additionally with, um, With Mike Heiser has posted a few other articles about this from real scholars about it. And it's kind of technical, but the bottom line is that the genetic testing is not uh, showing what they're claiming it to to say. And there's every good reason to suggest that it's just a, a common thing that happens with genetic testing. Though, what can you do about it? They're not letting other people, you know, do the same kind of work. And we have to rely on this sort of nebulous, oh, we had somebody look at it and they said something about it. So, you know, on the one hand, I don't have a problem with Nephilim bones being found. I mean, I'm not, I'm not arguing against this because it's impossible, because the Nephilim existed. And it's highly likely or even, um, I mean, at least probable that they have some remains somewhere on the earth. Now, almost everybody knows by now that a lot of these pictures of, you know, giant skeletons are fakes. And it's just become almost an internet meme of of fake giant skeletons. But at the same time, I mean, there are big bones out there too. So, again, it's possible. The elongated skull situation is difficult for... I mean, we know that that was a common thing that was done in the very area where these skulls were found. And I know the argument is something to the effect of maybe they were just trying to sort of uh imitate... Um, what the original peop- you know, the Nephilim heads look like. Another thing is that we don't have any indication about this, ne- the Nephilim heads being elongated like this or aliens or anything else. Um, as far as stuff like Nephilim mounds and stuff, I haven't really looked into all that stuff. But I will say this that, that again, it is possible that this stuff could be the remains of Nephilim. The star child skull, the skull stuff is. Almost certainly not, in my opinion, for reasons that are detailed in that article in Ancient Aliens Debunked. But the idea is possible. Where I really get upset with the the Nephilim thing is when it has anything to do with prophecy. Because that is just not feasible, in my opinion. Um, And any time you try to make the Nephilim come back or need to come back to fulfill Bible prophecy, one needs to play very fast and loose with the text. Um, the primary idea being in, uh, Daniel two, when it talks about the end of the Roman empire, having, uh, the two parts of that, uh, division of the empire being iron and clay, one is weaker than the other, but they're trying to cleave together in order to, uh, make the empire strong again, but it doesn't work and the empire fails. And I've argued in my commentary on Daniel, or you can see, you can hear that in the podcast on Daniel two, I also have a video out there called Nephilim Toes or the End of Rome in which I argue strongly that the mingling is, has nothing to do with Nephilim. Grammatically, it's impossible. It must be referring to the two parts of the end of the Roman Empire, uh, which they did exactly what the King James and any, any other Bible translation says about that word mingle, which is to, uh, as the ESV puts it, to mix one another to get together in marriage. That is, uh, a surety it's used uh at least uh, a number of times talking about israelites mingling with the the gentiles and producing uh children and and marrying them and so on the, the, what the King James, uh, translators were saying when they used that word mingle was to refer to what they were referring to when they used the word mingle in other places. That is to mix one another together in marriage. So the ESV's translation is correct. And that's exactly what happened at the end of, of Rome. The East Empire and the West Empire were trying to cleave together. The Western Empire was like the, the clay. It was weak. It was dying out. Eventually they had to move the capital all the way to the Eastern Empire in Constantinople because it was so dangerous to live in the West and the West ultimately fell very soon after that. But, um, the point is is that they tried to cleave it together. The Vandals were coming and they needed a united Roman Empire. So Leo married, you know, got Anthemius to go over there and married daughters off Leonida and the rest of it to try to say, Hey, we're one big happily family now. You know, let's have this political marriage. Maybe we can fight the Vandals now. But that didn't work. The battle went really badly. So, uh, he tried it again. He, with Julius Nepos, he married off his niece to Julius Nepos, who was, by all accounts, the last empire, uh, last emperor of the Western Empire. And in fact, his surname means nephew. He took the surname because, surname because he had this politically arranged marriage to try to, uh, go rule the West and have it be one family, one united family again. But the issue is it doesn't work, and it fizzles out of existence. If this is talking about the Nephilim in the end times, then the point is that it doesn't work. If you're worried about the Nephilim, you don't need to be because it doesn't work, and uh, the whole thing doesn't work. Now, of course, I think that Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 should not be viewed as exactly the same thing as many people do. You can see my uh, video about that as well. The Revived Roman Empire Debunked, I think, is something like I called that video, and it's also in the Daniel Commentary of course, but anyway, the point is, is that the one proof text they have about Nephilim coming back, because the others make absolute, are absolutely totally wrong. Like the idea of in the days of Noah, uh, is contextually nothing to do about the Nephilim because it's talking about just like in the days of Noah, if you go to the Luke, Luke version of this, he's also talking about a lot in the days of Noah they, the wrath of God came on the very same day that they entered the ark. And he put, points out that it also in the days of Lot, it, they had to wait for Lot to get out of the city before the wrath of God came. And just like those, he's saying that it's going to be in that same day. That's Jesus' point, to talk about the timing of the events he just got done talking about. If we are to just take that phrase, in the days of Noah, and say, well, what happened in the days of Noah? Well, there were Nephilim. He must mean that Nephilim are coming back. We are reading a huge amount And completely out of context, because that's certainly not Jesus's point. He tells you what his point is. He goes on to tell the fig tree parable to reiterate this idea about the timing issue is what he's talking about. That that when you see the fig tree producing fruit, you know that summer's near in the same way you know when you see these signs, you know the end is near. His point is to talk about the timing of the issue, and that's why he's saying, as in the days of Noah, and he doesn't just talk about the days of Noah, because he says the days of Lot in the parallel passages. So, were there Nephilim on the earth in in the days of Lot? Are we now to uh, assume that? Whatever. The point is that that the, the proof texts for Nephilim coming back are nil, especially if you take away the Daniel 2 stuff, about the mingling seed stuff, because that is the only real thing that they have. So, Yes, it's possible that Nephilim bones are out there. And if they found them, maybe it would be good for an apologetic kind of thing. You know, hey, look, Nephilim really or exist, really existed. and Maybe that would be a good uh, way to say that the Bible is true. For that reason, it could be a valid and fruitful thing to do. <clears throat> but it is not valid or fruitful to um, force the idea onto Things based on very uh flimsy ideas like the Starchild skull and the rest of it. And if they're really serious about that, they need to let some serious geneticists look at it. If they really want, hey, this needs to, to be proven by the world, then get it out of the hands of the New Agers and give it to some serious scholars who can actually confirm it. Because what they're showing so far, though they're making a big deal about it, um, is not... As interesting at all is that they're, as they're saying, it's a pretty common thing that happens with genetic testing. It's just inconclusive. They're taking a really regular inconclusive reading and saying, this must mean this inconclusive reading. You know, if you say that we did genetic testing and it was inconclusive, uh, you know, <gasps> inconclusive, that must mean it's not human, you know, but inconclusive just means it's inconclusive. It needs to have some more work done on it, which is a really regular thing. So it's really a matter of, you know, there's some some quotes from geneticists and stuff, if you go searching around about this, that are like banging their head against the wall because this is such an obvious thing in genetic testing. So if they're serious about it, they really want to be a witness uh, and show that the Bible is true, which again, may it may be out there. It may be an Nephilim school. I don't know. But I don't think so. But if it is, then why not prove it? So... That's my take on it. I know a lot of uh, people are, are saying a lot of stuff about it. Uh, I wish it would be more careful. I'm not against the idea of people talking about it if they're absolutely certain and they have done the legwork. But it's dangerous to, to do this half-heartedly or to let your sort of desire for it to be true uh, take uh, precedence because you can end up doing the exact opposite of your goal. That is making everybody look stupid. And if your goal is to make the Bible look good by proving this to be true, but instead you make Christians look stupid and believe stuff that is obviously wrong, then you have done more damage by messing up than you would. Well, you know, I don't know which one's better or worse, but the point is, if it's wrong, you're doing a great disservice to everybody. All right, I guess that is it for today. Again, I want to remind you that if you have any questions for the podcast, whether they be general questions for Nowhere to Run or Bible Prophecy questions for Bible Prophecy Talk, you can go to either one of those websites and on the sidebar there is a super easy form to submit your questions to be answered on future podcasts. Again, I want to remind you to sign up for the email list while you're there and uh, get a free copy of the upcoming book, False Christ, which should be out in a week or two or three. I'm not quite sure. I'm going to release it in as many formats as possible and I want to give away a uh, free pdf to anybody that's on the list. Also, something that I forgot to mention, if you have any recommendations of books or sermons about the idea of sort of getting out of a spiritual rut or spiritual stagnation, uh please send them to me. It's kind of hard to to find out the books that are are, you know, they're not titled appropriately sometimes. So if you know of a book that's helped you get out of a spiritual rut or spiritual stagnation, well, uh please do send that to me. It'll be invaluable to me in the research. And thanks to everyone who has been praying for and supporting this ministry. It has been great and uh, has been especially helpful during this time of trying to get all this stuff uh, figured out and done. All right. We'll talk to you very, very soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you would like a free copy of the Christianity 101 DVD, which contains 8 gigabytes of audio, video, and text of various discipleship materials on a data DVD, Please go to any one of my websites and look for the Christianity 101 button. It's totally free and I'll ship it to you wherever you are in the world. If you would like to support this ministry or any of the others that I do, please consider a tax-deductible donation, which can be sent by PayPal using the email chris at chriswhiteministries.com or by clicking the PayPal button on any one of my websites. Another great way to support this ministry is by writing a review of the podcast on iTunes or writing a review of my books on Amazon. Reviews figure very prominently into the ranking algorithms of both of those websites, and the higher they rank, the more people that can be reached. Thanks for your time and for subscribing to this feed.